Pacaw. There it is. Spiffy, huh? Somebody was tired of me wearing yours, so they they hooked me up. What do you think? Do I look uh, more intelligent? No, didn't help. <laughs> they did what? What's the matter? They're over my ears. That's how high the ears are, babe. I don't know what to tell you. <laughs> they used to fit on Fritz's ears. Oh, it makes sense. Now it all makes sense, huh? All right. We're going to open up to the book of Isaiah. So if you have your Bibles with you, go ahead and open up with me. Wow, it's amazing. I can see both ways. Wow, it's so cool. Wasn't she just complaining about the glasses a second ago? I'm trying to be optimistic. <laughs> <laughs> All right, tonight we find ourselves uh, in chapter 17 uh, of the book of Isaiah. And we're, we're in the middle of a section in Isaiah where the Lord is laying out a judgment of the nations that surround Israel. So he's going to go one by one by one through the nations. We've already covered, um, we're on the 5th, I think, right now. Hopefully we'll get all the way to Egypt, which is the sixth. We'll see how that works out. But as we take a look at chapter 17, we're in the middle of uh, the Lord's declaration against Syria. In fact, he begins in chapter 17, verse 1, and says, This is the burden against Damascus. Damascus, the capital of Syria, uh, it's known today as, well, there's a lot of cities that try to make this claim, but as the oldest city in the world, uh, that Damascus dates back uh, further than than any of the other ones. Um, so it says, it's burden against Damascus, or the capital of Syria. Behold, Damascus will cease from being a city, and it will be a ruinous heap. Now here's what we know about Damascus. Damascus has been utterly destroyed over and over and over again, just like Jerusalem. The difference between Jerusalem is, because of Jerusalem's propensity to be at the Temple Mount, which is indisputable the mount of olives the temple mount doesn't matter what you do with the city those things are still those mountains that are there so they would always rebuild jerusalem on the same place in terms of damascus when damascus was destroyed still today you can go to damascus and visit and there are a variety of ruins around the city proper today nobody knows which one of those ruins were the original damascus or if when the scripture talks about damascus being a ruinous heap we're looking at an event that's going to take place during the tribulation period um, as the Antichrist reigns. Both of those are possibilities. Uh, the important thing to realize is, again, as we go through Isaiah, when you look at prophecy, here's what you're going to see. A near and far fulfillment. You're going to see a local fulfillment often as the prophet was speaking to people that lived then. But you're also going to see glimpses or shadows of a fulfillment in the distance. And at the time of the Lord, or the day of the Lord, Daniel's 70th week, as the wrath of God is poured out on a Christ-rejecting world. So when we look, keep in mind, you're probably seeing portions of what took place in Damascus and a, a shadow or a preview of what's going to take place further down the road. He goes on and says now in verse 2, the cities of Aurora are forsaken. They will be for flocks which lie down, and no one will make them afraid. Aurora is a, is a suburb, one of the cities around Damascus. And the idea is it's going to be so desolate at some time in the future that, have you ever seen, well, you all have seen flocks of sheep, right? I can spook a flock of sheep just by looking at them. So what he's saying is nobody's going to, nobody's going to be looking at them. With my glasses, I'll just send them running. But the reality is that what he's saying is it's going to be utterly desolate at that time. He goes on. Now the fortress also will cease from Ephraim. Again, folks, when we see Ephraim in the scriptures, especially in the book of Isaiah, we're talking about the ten northern tribes. The ten northern tribes uh, followed under the, the, the heading of Ephraim because it was the foremost of the twelve tribes that were a part of the ten northern tribes when the, split, when the nation split into two. Here's what you need to realize. When God's talking to Syria and bringing judgment against Syria, the northern kingdom, or Israel, or Ephraim, 
they were aligned with Syria. The southern kingdom, Judah, they were aligned with Egypt. Okay, Each of them had allies with other groups as they tried to have a series of wars between one another. So when God's speaking to Syria, he's also going to speak to Ephraim or the ten northern tribes or Israel. And that's what he's talking about as he turns his focus in verse 3 to the fortress from Ephraim, the kingdom from Damascus and the remnant of Syria. They, they will be as the glory of the children of Israel, says the Lord of hosts. Here's what he's saying. There was a time in history when Ezekiel the prophet was told to make a sign and put it on the temple. He was supposed to carve this sign, the word, you've heard this word before, Ichabod. You know, the headless horseman, Ichabod Crane. He was supposed to write Ichabod on the sign and nail it above the temple. Ichabod means, Ichabod means the glory has departed. You see, God was no longer present in the temple and the people didn't even know it. When we studied Ezekiel, or when we studied Exodus, you know when the children of Israel erected the tabernacle, the glory of the Lord came right there onto the tabernacle. The cloud, the pillar of fire shining down, the, the, the evidence that God was in the tabernacle was, was evident. They could see the evidence of, of God being there. So when we look at that, while that's true, the same thing was true in the temple. Keep in mind, when we look at the temple, what would take place is when the priest went in, the Holy of Holies had no light, no windows, no candles, nothing. When the priest went into that place, it was the Kabad, the Shekinah, the glory of God that lit the room. But somewhere in their history, the glory was gone, the light was out of the temple, and nobody noticed. So when God says here, they're going to be like the glory, he's talking about like the time when the glory had departed. That God's not home anymore, and they're not missing him. That's the point. And actually, we see this fulfilled by, by Tiglath-Poliser uh, in 2 Kings chapter 15. And Shalamanasar is going to take them in and deport them into captivity in 2 Kings chapter 17. So the fulfillment of of this first section of Scripture, at least the local fulfillment, we see taking place in 2 Kings chapter 15. Now, verse 4, he goes on. Now, in that day, it shall come to pass that the glory of Jacob will wane, and the fatness of his flesh will grow lean. It shall be as when the harvesters gathers the grain and reaps the heads with his arm. It shall be as though he, he who gathers the heads of grain in the valley uh, of Rephaim... Yet gleaning grapes will be left in it. Like the shaking of an olive tree, two or three olives at the top of the uttermost bough, four or five in its most fruitful branches, says the Lord God of Israel. So he's talking about the fact that the harvest is going to be lean in the nation of Israel. They're going to have, a, a, what, where they've had plenty, they're going to have little. Why is that important? Because God declared in his word, Genesis Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, that a sign to his people would always be they would know that they were walking with the Lord when the rains came, the early rains and the latter rains, when the harvest was plenty. They would know that they are walking with the Lord. But God said, so you know when you're getting off track, when you're not following my direction, when you're going your own way, when that takes place, there's going to be famine. You're going to notice a lack of food. You remember the book of Ruth, right? Ruth and her family was living in Bethlehem, which means house of bread. There was a famine in the land, and what did they do? They left the house of bread, and they went to Moab, which God said, Moab is my wash pot. Moab is the toilet. They left the house of bread to go find food in the toilet. That's what the Bible's talking about in that particular story. The, the, symbol, the symbolism is, when you realize you don't have food... Call upon the name of the Lord. Repent. You've gotten off track. And that's the word that God is bringing here to the ten northern tribes. Keep in mind, the ten northern tribes of Israel, when Israel split, never had a decent king. They were always were just terrible. They were always wrought with sin. They even brought back the golden calves in the northern territory. And they set it up in Dan so that the people could worship the golden calves again. 
So the Lord is laying out, hey, times are going to be lean. The harvest is going to be tight in an effort that people will look to him. Guys, when we look at the book of Revelation, so many times we see the book of Revelation in light of judgment and people getting what they deserve. And that's not the case. God is doing things in the world and through the world that people will come to the end of themselves and cry out to him. That's why it's so damning when you read the phrase in the book of Revelation that says, and still they did not repent. Still they would not call upon the name of the Lord. Man in outright and and utter rebellion against what God's doing. So when we look at that, wrath of God poured out, the seven seals, the seven bowls, the seven trumpet judgments of God... Keep in mind, what God is doing is shaking everything that can be shaken so that man will let go of all the junk he's holding on to and hold on to him and be saved. Because the bottom line is, folks, that's the number one point with God. What is the number one thing God wants? He wants you to spend eternity with him. But if we're not holding on to him, you're holding on to something else. And if you're holding on to something else, you're not spending eternity with him. We got to be clinging to the Lord, pressing into him. That's why he's given this warning to them. Hey, you're going to go through hard times. You're going to go through difficulties. Call out on me. Call out on me. Call out on me. So that you'll put your faith and trust in him. The scripture goes on and declares to us in verse 7. And in that day, a man will look to his maker and his eyes will have respect for the Holy One of Israel. He will not look to the altars or the works of his hands. He will not respect what his fingers have made, nor the wooden images, nor the incense altars. Remember the psalmist would declare to us that a man goes into the forest and chops down a tree. Part of that tree he chops into a piece of wood for the fire. But a section of that tree he carves into a god. And he bows down and prays to this god. A God with eyes who cannot see, a God with a mouth who cannot speak, a God with ears who cannot hear. And the Lord declares in Psalms, those who worship them become like them. What's that mean? We can't see, we can't hear, we can't know. So as the Lord leads the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom ultimately into captivity, he's going to cure their idolatry once and for all. If you go to Israel today... There are sections of Israel where you can find so many idols in the dirt and in the dust that people had just hundreds of gods that they were worshiping. They're in Israel. And God cured that idolatry by sending them each to the capital of idolatry. One went to Babylon, the other to Assyria. And by the time they were done there, they didn't want anymore. They didn't want to have anything to do with that. They wanted to call upon their maker. They wanted to draw near unto the Lord. In that day, his strong cities will be as a forsaken bough, and his uppermost branch, which they left because of the children of Israel, there will be desolation. But listen, look, listen to what he's saying. In that day, his strong cities will be as a forsaken bough, and an uppermost branch, which they left because of the children of Israel. God, guys, always has a remnant. God never utterly destroyed his people where there was no return. There was always a remnant. Who were the remnant of Israel? Did God just randomly choose people? Did he just randomly say, okay, you guys aren't going to be wiped out? Who did he, who did he have as his remnant? Who, did, who persevered through the judgment, through the, the struggles, through the trials? The faithful. The faithful. God took care of the righteous. The, the prophet declared to the Lord, will you destroy the righteous with the good? What did God say? No. I'll never destroy the righteous with the good. God will not bring a judgment from God to destroy the righteous. So when we look at that, God's going to preserve his remnant. And the remnant of Israel is going to continue now, in verse 10, he says, now, here's the issue. Because you have forgotten the God of your salvation and have not been mindful of the rock of your stronghold, therefore, you will plant pleasant plants and set out foreign seedlings 
And in that day you will make your plant to grow. And in the morning you will make your seed to flourish. But the harvest will be a heap of ruins in the day of grief and desperate sorrow. Now he's saying, listen, you guys have forgotten God. You've gotten off track. You're, you're not following me. And as a result, you're going to do all this work. You're going to plant all these plants. You're going to do all these things. Looking forward to a harvest that's never going to come. You remember what Jesus said? He said there was a man who had large property, many lands. And as he brought in his harvest, he said, the harvest is so great, my barns won't even hold it. I'll build, I'll tear down these barns and I'll build bigger barns. And then I'll, I'll fill those barns and I'll take my rest. And you remember what the Lord said? You fool. Today your soul is required of you. Today's your last day. But you're looking and striving for a harvest that's never going to happen. In the scripture, what the Lord requires of us, what God desires of us, is that our eyes and heart, our being, our soul, is so focused on Him. I'm not saying we're so focused on God, we don't do anything else, because the scripture declares, a man that doesn't take care of his family is worse than an unbeliever. So God wants us to do the things we have to do, but where's our focus? Is our focus on riches, earthly gain, what we can have? Or is our focus on living our life to glorify God? If it is placed in the Lord, we're not wasting our time. But if we're chasing some kind of American dream of, of wanting, you know, a lot, money, whatever, success, power, you know, what's the world say? Sex, drugs, and rock and roll, whatever. If you're looking for those things, it's going to come up empty. The harvest is ruined. That's what the Lord says. The harvest is a, ra- is a waste. Verse 12, he says, Woe to the multitude of many peoples. Now he's looking at Assyria. These are the people who ultimately God uses to bring judgment on Syria and the northern kingdom. If this is the nation of Assyria, not the same as Syria. Assyria ruled the world for 700 years prior to the reign of Babylon, the, the next kingdom that would come on after Assyria. They make a noise like the roar of the seas and to the rushing of nations that make a, uh, they make a rushing like the rushing of many waters. And the nations will rush like the rushing of many waters, but God will rebuke them and they will flee away. And they will be chased like the chaff of the mountains before the wind, like a rolling thing before the whirlwind. Then behold, at eventide, trouble. And before the morning, he is no more. Assyria, this mighty nation, actually would boast to the places that they conquered. They would actually come in and carry the heads of the kings that they had destroyed. And on the one hand, they'd have their heads. And on the other hand, they would have their idols. And they would come to the next city, town, nation, and they would hold up these heads and say, this is what happened to all the rulers before you. And these are all their gods, and they couldn't save them, and your God won't save you either. Many times those nations, when Assyria would come against them, would commit mass suicide rather than to fall into their hands. They would just all kill each, one another and, and perish in that place. And Assyria came to Judah. They brought Israel and they took Syria into captivity. And then they went to Judah. Remember Judah, the southern kingdom? The southern kingdom of Israel, they actually followed the Lord somewhat. And the Lord said, Assyria, you're not touching them. They're not for you. But Shennacherib, he stood outside of Judah and he declared to King Hezekiah, these are the heads of all the kings that I have destroyed, and these are all their gods. And they could not save them, and your God won't save you either. And Hezekiah, Elijah, they're going to they're walk out, in, in, or Hezekiah and Isaiah, I'm sorry, they're going to walk out into the, into the, the temple, and they're going to open up this letter that Shennacherib wrote, and they're going to lay out the request, and he's going to come before the Lord and say, God... I don't know what to do, but this is what he's saying. He's right outside the city right now, but I trust you. And the Bible says, woe at eventide, trouble. That night, Assyria all went to bed. The next day, they were no more. 
You see, God went and dispatched one angel. The armies of Assyria were 185,000. He went and dispatched one angel at the evening. And that angel flew through the camp and killed every single Assyrian in the army. And the Assyrian nation from that point declined until Babylon took over. That's what Isaiah is talking about. Before it takes place, God says, in one night, armies are going to be wiped out. Before the morning, he is no more. This is the portion of those who plunder us and the lot of those who rob us. Now, yeah, God used them in their sin, in their, in their rebellion, in their hatred. God used them. But God didn't make the choice for them. You guys understand how that works. It's pretty simple, really. The Bible says in Romans 8, 28, For we know all things work together for good to those who love God and are called according to His purpose. God uses every event in history, every choice man makes. He uses it to further and to uh, uh, bring His will on earth as it is in heaven. Isn't that what the, the, the prayer reads? Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. God uses it all. But God never removes the responsibility from men for choosing the path that they're on. The nation of Assyria is judged for who they are. The point is they didn't have to be who they were. But God used them anyway. The same hope is in our life, folks, because God uses everything. It's so freeing when you come to the point where you realize God is going to use everything I do, every choice, every failure. God is going to bring some good out of that. So I can learn to rest in me and my ability and trust in Him. And the sooner I learn to rest in me and thinking that somehow I need to have all the answers, and the sooner I come to the place where I lean into the Lord, the sooner that I experience the, the power of God working in my life. Bringing all the loose ends back together again. God knows how they fit. And we can trust Him. That's what takes place there. Now chapter 18, he's going to look toward Ethiopia. This is actually a very interesting chapter. This chapter, many people see the United States in this chapter. Maybe you've heard uh, one or more people that, that read this and and see that I, I will point it out to you why they think that but i don't necessarily uh, prescribe to the same issue because the lord lays out for woe to the land shadowed with buzzing wings which is beyond the rivers of ethiopia he's going to be pointing his direction toward ethiopia and i'll share a few reasons why i believe that he's talking about ethiopia but here's how he begins woe by the way that word woe in the in the hebrew language it's not the same as the other woes we've, we've read. This woe is, carries more of the idea of, of, hey, check this out. More than judgment, like you see in some of the other woes. So as we look at this, keep that in mind. Because when you read chapter 18, you're not going to read judgment. There's not a judgment that falls. Okay, it's just describing a group of people that we're gonna, are going to return to Jerusalem and worship. Listen. Woe to the land shadowed with buzzing wings, which is beyond the rivers of Ethiopia, which sends ambassadors by sea, even in vessels of reed on the water, saying, Go, swift messengers, to a nation tall and smooth of skin, to a people terrible from their beginning onward, a nation powerful and treading down, whose land the rivers divide. Now if you look at those two verses... You can place the United States in that. For example, the United States, how do we send our ambassadors? Well, really by plane. But at one point, it was by, by ship. There's, we can't take a land bridge over to the Middle East to provide ambassadors in that place. But I believe what he's looking at here, while you can see evidence of a possibility of the United States, for example, divided by the rivers, the United States, over a, a fourth of the world's fresh water is in the U.S. The water system in the United States is a big reason behind the United States excelling during the Industrial Revolution 
Because unlike a lot of other third world countries, we had an abundance of fresh water. And what did that fresh water mean? Power. We had power. Power to run our plants. Power to build. Power to develop. And that's what helped us propel ourselves forward. So there are certain things here that, that could speak of the U.S. A country with buzzing wings. You and I go outside and see buzzing wings all the time. Planes flying by, going by. But listen. At the time when Isaiah is writing this, certainly, I think he has in view Ethiopia. He has in view Ethiopia. Even in Ethiopia today, it is known as a, a, a place noted for its birds, the abundance of birds in Ethiopia, flying all over the place. It's one of the things that it's known for. It's also mentioned as being beyond the river of Ethiopia, which sends ambassadors by sea. Now, while Ethiopia tended to send their ambassadors by chariot, they also sent their ambassadors by way of the river. They would, they would be able to come down the river, down into uh, the land in order to, to bring ambassadors in that place. The, the thing is, as we look at it, ambassadors by the sea in, in ships of reed, it doesn't really fit with the United States either. We send ambassadors that was on big metal ships, not very often on ships built out of reeds. But ships built out of reeds would have been more common in the land of Ethiopia. Now, could this have a near and far fulfillment? Sure. Listen, when we look back at prophecy that's fulfilled, our, our, our ability to understand is 2020. We got 2020 vision looking backwards. Looking frontwards, ain't no guarantee what we got. We do the best we can based on what it seems Scripture is laying out. And wherever possible, we allow Scripture to speak for itself. The rest of the time, we wait and see. But what does our 2020 vision tell us when we look back? It tells us that God is always completely faithful to His Word. Every prophecy that has ever been fulfilled was fulfilled literally and completely. So we look back at that and we say, well, then if we don't understand how this fits or how this, how this works, we just got to keep watching. One day it's going to pop up on the front page of the paper. And you'll be able to read it in bold print as it all works out. But I think he's talking about Ethiopia here. Listen, in verse 3, All inhabitants of the world and dwellers on the earth, when he lifts up a banner on the mountains, you will see it. And when he blows a trumpet, you will hear it. That word for banner is the word ensign. A lot of commentators believe when they look at this as being the, the nation of Ethiopia, a lot of commentators believe some point... In the future, Ethiopia is going to unveil the Ark of the Covenant. And this is the banner that you're talking about. This is the ensign that it is in Ethiopia, and that's what's going to be revealed. Again, we're still looking forward. It's an event that hasn't taken place yet. Our vision's not 2020 that way. It could, it could deal with something else, but it's interesting that one of the places that are uh, boasting that they actually have the Ark is Ethiopia. They've never presented it. Nobody really knows for sure. But that's a possibility pointing to uh, this being the Ethiopians at one point, at some point, that will reveal the Ark of the Covenant, maybe at the time when the nation of Israel has rebuilt the temple. Because for the temple, at the Temple Institute, they have all the implements for the temple. They can't remake the Ark of the Covenant. So that would remain empty in the Holy of Holies. Perhaps Ethiopia is going to Stand up and unveil the banner and all eyes will be upon them. For so the Lord said to me, <clears throat> I will take my rest and I will look for my dwelling place like clear heat in sunshine, like the cloud of dew in the heat of the harvest. For before the harvest, when the bud is perfect and the sour grape is ripening in the flower, he will both cut off the sprigs with pruning hooks and take away and cut down the branches. Now what he's saying in poetic language here is that there's going to be a period of time while all this is going on where we're dealing with poor harvest. Poor harvest. So when we look at Daniel's 70th week, what's one of the things we know is going to happen in, in the 70th week of Daniel? In the six seals of, of uh, the, the first six seals and the four horsemen of the apocalypse, one of them is called famine, right? Poor harvest. Is it that that the Lord is looking forward to that time? Is it something that, that took place in the past? Nobody can really agree exactly on uh, what we're looking at here. I tend to believe 
We're looking at Ethiopia, and we're going to look at Ethiopia's return. Just as the Ethiopian eunuch worshipped in Israel, Ethiopia boasts the fact that they were born in Jerusalem. Not very many people boast about that. They boast the fact that, that they were born, that they always had a, a, a desire, a lineage, a group of people that, that would return to Jerusalem and, and worship and that, that, that desire to, to look into the things of God as God fears in the Scripture. So as we look at that, listen to what he says. It says that, Then they will be left together for the, the mountain birds of prey and for the beasts of the earth, the birds of prey will summer on them and the beasts of the earth will winter on them. So we have a period of time and where there's going to be this tribulation, persecution, famine. And then look at verse 7. But in that time, a present will be brought to the Lord of hosts. In that time, they're going to bring a present to the Lord. From a people tall and smooth of skin and from a people terrible from their beginning onward. A nation powerful and treading down, whose land the rivers divide, to the place of the name of the Lord of hosts, to Mount Zion. So, while he's not speaking to judgment, he's saying there's going to be a gift, a present brought from this land to Jerusalem. Mount Zion is Jerusalem. Mount Zion ultimately becomes the place where we see the the temple being built. the, The city, or the hill, mountain, upon which Jerusalem sets. So as we look at that, they're going to come to that place and bring a present. You'll notice, chapter 18, we're not really talking about judgment. We don't see a nation coming, bring them into captivity like we've seen in the others. As we look at this, it seems like God's given us a parenthetical view of what's going to happen. Whether it's Ethiopia or the United States taking place in this, we don't know for sure. One of those two things is uh, indeed happening. Then we look at chapter 19. Chapter 19 becomes the burden against Egypt. Now as we look at this, there's some pretty incredible facets of this prophecy uh, that we're going to want to highlight. As we take a look, it says, Now behold, the Lord rides on a swift cloud and will come into Egypt. And the idols of Egypt will totter at His presence, and the heart of Egypt will melt in its midst. When we study history, we discover something. We, We discover that Egypt began as a monotheistic society, but it degraded into a polytheistic society. What's that mean? At one time, Egypt had one God. And from that one God, they just fell further and further. In fact, if you read Romans chapter 1, you can read the spiral of man who began to worship the creation instead of the creator. And so the same thing takes place in Egypt. Egypt becomes a real center Egypt and Babylon, they become real centers for idol worship, false worship, false religions. And so we see that as a result, the Lord is moving against Egypt because of their idols, because of the false worship, because of what's going on there. Verse 2, And I will set Egyptian against Egyptians. Everyone will fight against his brother, everyone against his neighbor, city against city, and kingdom against kingdom. And when we look at that, we also, it reminds me so much of uh, Matthew chapter 24 when Jesus said, and nation will rise up against nation, ethnos against ethnos, people against people. There'll be wars and rumors of wars. Well, we see a precursor to that taking place in Egypt. In history, this occurred. Pharaoh after Pharaoh came into power and had no ability to control the people. They had no ability to control their own army. So Egypt divides into two, northern Egypt and southern Egypt. And they had different cities. And each one of their cities acted or, or reacted like different city-states or, or nations unto themselves. And they had war against one another. At one time, Egypt being this world power, ultimately takes a decline to the place where they are powerless. There's nothing. And before it takes place, Isaiah writes about it. So that we can see the end from the beginning. Take a look. He goes on to tell us. Now, first we see the failure of their false religion. The failure of their their idols. And then we're going to see the failure of the material things that they possess. It goes on. The spirit of Egypt will fail in its midst. And I will destroy their counsel. 
And they will consult the idols and the charmers, the mediums and the sorcerers. And the Egyptians I will give into the hand of a cruel master, and a fierce king will rule over them, says the Lord of hosts. The, the, the fierce king is probably Semetichus, who took over uh, the nation of Egypt. They taxed the people into ruin. We saw a similar thing take place in the uh, Middle East when the Turks, the Ottoman Turks ruled. When the Ottoman Turks ruled, you know how they taxed the people? They taxed the people based on how many trees they had. So what did people do? Cut down all the trees. That's what turned Israel into a wasteland. All the trees they cut down, and it wasn't until the nation of Israel began to spring up again that it was reforested by the farmers who lived in the kibbutzes who came to the nation of Israel to do that. Same thing we see taking place in Egypt. They're ruined by this fierce king. He taxes them into poverty and they lose their material resources. Now, as we finish up in verse 4, then you look from uh, verse 5, well, you could probably take 5 all the way to 15. It's interesting because when we look at this, every single thing you read here reads as though you're reading what happened after Egypt built the Aswan Dam. You see, you got the Nile River. What's the problem with the Nile River? It's always flooding. Well, we can control the flooding of the Nile River. We'll build the dam. And by deciding to build the dam, they utterly ruined the river. Still ruined today. Why? Because every time the Nile flooded, it washed down nutrients into the Nile Delta. And the Nile Delta was so ripe. They, were, they, were, they could grow anything in the Nile Delta. It was, it was a fertile, fertile place. What happens now? There's no flooding. No fertile soil coming down to the Nile Delta. The Nile Delta looks like a desert with water flowing through it. Nothing grows on the sides. The, 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 the food, fertilizer, the life that was washed down in the flooding seasons would bring great fishing to all of Egypt. What do they have today? Nothing. Zip, zilch, no fish. They don't fish. Fishing has been utterly ruined because of the Aswan Dam. So as we look at verses 5 through 15, everything that you see here, you could, you could say was something that took place after the building of that dam. I think in something like 72, 73. The waters will fail from the sea, and the river will be wasted and dried up. The rivers will turn foul. The brooks of defense will be emptied and dried up, and the reeds and the rushes will wither. The papyrus reeds by the river, by the mouth of the river, and everything sown by the river will wither and be driven away and will be no more. The fishermen also will mourn. All those who lament will cast hooks into the river, and they will languish who spread their nets on the waters. Moreover, those who work in fine flax, those who weave fine fabric will be ashamed, and its foundations will be broken. All who make wages will be troubled of the soul. In that single move, when they built that dam, they accomplished all this. Utterly fulfilling everything that Scripture said. The plan was, we build this dam, it's going to help. But what occurred was the destruction of an ecosystem that can only be repaired if they would go in and blow the dam up which they're not going to do. So, Egypt is laid waste. Just a, a couple of years ago, we took a trip to Israel, and, and at the end of the trip, some folks went down the Nile River, took a cruise down the Nile River, and went to Egypt. Egypt today, one of the oldest countries in the world, it, it cracks me up, because when you go to Israel or, or Egypt or Greece, and you talk about antiques, they'll laugh at you. Because they realize in the United States, you think something's an antique if it's 50, 70, 100 years old. That's an antique. They don't, they'll throw that away. That's just garbage. They've got 1,000 years, 2,000 years of history in, in those countries. They've, got, they've been there forever. Egypt is like that. Egypt went from so powerful to utterly demolished, and it follows... Just what Isaiah said. Little by little, all the way through. Today, 
Egypt is one of the poorest countries out there, and it's in the middle of the Middle East. Folks, there should be oil, shouldn't there? Something they should be able to, to, to be wealthy, but they're not. They're one of the poorest of the poor still today. But look as we continue. Verse 11. Surely the princes of Zoan are fools. Pharaoh's wise counselors give foolish counsel. How do you say to Pharaoh, I am the son of the wise, the son of ancient kings? Where are they? Where are your wise men? Let them tell you now, and let them know what the Lord of hosts has purposed against Egypt. For the princes of Zon have become fools, and the princes of Naph are deceived. When we look at Zon, we're talking about the Egyptian city uh, today, Tammuz. And when we talk about Naph, we're talking about Memphis. It's their ancient names related to their, to their current names. And here's what took place. In those cities, the rulers of Pharaoh dwelled and they intermarried. They intermarried themselves into oblivion. Brother married sister so many times that the offspring were utter morons. That's why the Bible says they have become fools. In unable to rule, unable to do anything. They literally bred themselves into oblivion. And the Lord laying it out for them. Hey, here's what's taking place. Here's what you're going to do. You're going to become fools. And they became fools because of the practices that they put in place. They also have deluded Egypt, those who are the mainstay of its tribes. You guys remember... The woman that most famous in Egypt, Cleopatra, you know she's not Egyptian, right? She was Greek. She becomes a queen of Egypt because the Egyptians were, well, just not very bright. And Cleopatra is going to become the, the power in Egypt simply by deluding them, lying to them through trickery. She takes their, their nation, and she's Greek. So the scripture here is saying they're going to delude Egypt, those who are the mainstay of its tribes. And the Lord has mingled the perverse spirit in her midst, and they have caused Egypt to err in all her work, as a drunken man staggers in his vomit. That's pretty graphic picturing, isn't it? Neither will there be any work for Egypt which the head or the tail, the palm branch or the bulrush may do. Man, at one time, all along the Nile River, they, 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 they were able to harvest uh, papyrus to make paper. But today, all along the Nile, nothing, nothing grows there. Nothing grows there. You know how they farm in Egypt still? They still farm with an oxen or a horse or a donkey, or a mule, pulling a plow. Still. Do you realize the things that every nation on the earth owes to the Egyptian culture? The things they knew how to do, the pyramids that they grew. The, if you just look at, at the pyramids and the way they were built and, and what they were able to accomplish with those pyramids that, that we today can't, can't do with our modern technology. One of the pyramids, I, don't, I forget which one of the pyramids, it, the sun always shone on the, the center of this pyramid on the birth date of the Pharaoh. That's pretty amazing, isn't it? So they needed to move it. So they take it apart and rebuilt it. Now the sun doesn't shine there anymore. you think they'd be able to figure out how to do it. But the Egyptians knew how. But what do they do today? They're backwards. They're backwards. All that knowledge, where did it take them? It took them nowhere because all that knowledge was wrapped around the rejection of the one true God. Did they see the evidence of Almighty God in their, in their nation? When, when Israel came as 70 people and left as a million and a half, two million people, they didn't see the hand of God? They didn't see the hand of God in the ten plagues? They didn't see the hand of God in the parting of the Red Sea and the destruction of their armies. They didn't see the hand of God in the work that Moses did. 
You see, they had opportunity to see all that and be different, change, choose, follow the Lord. And they chose to rebel, reject, we will not be ruled. And today, they're backwards. Today, they've lost all that was once great. Their number one uh, means of, of earning money is tourism. To come look at pyramids that were built thousands of years before by men that were their betters. Still, not able to, to put forth anything else. Now, beginning in verse 16, we look to the future. Okay, We see these things having been fulfilled in Isaiah. Now we're going to look to the future. Now in that day, Egypt will be like the women and will be afraid in fear because of the waving of the hand of the Lord of hosts, which He waves over it. And the land of Judah will be a terror to Egypt. Everyone who makes mention of it will be afraid of himself because of the counsel of the Lord of hosts, which He has determined against it. In that day, five cities in the land of Egypt will speak the language of Canaan and swear by the Lord of hosts. One will be called the city of destruction. And some manuscripts, just by way of note, declare that to be called the city of the sun. Your Bible may make a note of that. Um, the difference is one letter in the Hebrew. So one letter off makes it the city of destruction. The other letter makes it the city of the sun. One of those two things is what we'll see there. In that day... There will be an altar to the Lord in the midst of the land of Egypt and a pillar to the Lord in its border. And it will be for a sign, for a witness to the Lord of hosts in the land of Egypt. For they will cry to the Lord because of the oppressors. And He will send them a Savior, a mighty one, and He will deliver them. As we look forward, we're seeing that there's going to be a turnaround for Egypt. Last chapter hasn't been written for them. Something is going to take place. Yet future. Something's going to happen. Probably what we're looking at is the fulfillment of these prophecies during the 70th week of Daniel or what we know as the tribulation period. As the Lord once again turns His attention to the nation of Israel and once again we begin to see uh, these prophecies fulfilled. As He looks forward to the millennial kingdom, look at verse 21. Then the Lord will be known to Egypt... And the Egyptians will know the Lord in that day. And they will make sacrifice and offering. Yes, they will perform. They will make a vow to the Lord and perform it. That word vow, it's the same word as offering. When we studied the book of Leviticus, it began with seven vows or the seven offerings that would be made uh, at, the, at the temple. The burnt offering, the sin offering, the trespass offering. Here he's saying, as we take a look at this, Egypt is going to be doing that. Egypt is going to be a part. That means when we look forward and we see that millennial reign of Christ, at the judgment of the nations, it takes place at all the nations. When Jesus asks, I was hungry and you fed me, I was naked and you clothed me, I was in prison and you visited me. And the people say, when did we or didn't we do that? And the Lord will say, when you did it to the least of these, my brethren, you did it unto me. During that time, Egypt must at some point, in some way, align themselves together and be a, be a support so that as they move forward through the judgment of the nations, they will enter into the millennial reign. And in the millennial reign, Jesus will reign as king and we'll see these events taking place. The Lord will, verse 22, strike Egypt. He will strike and heal it. They will return to the Lord and He will be entreated by them and heal them. In that day, there will be a highway from Egypt to Assyria, and the Assyrian will come into Egypt, and the Egyptian into Assyria. And the Egyptians will serve with the Assyrians. In that day, Israel will be one of the three, with Egypt and Assyria, a blessing in the midst of the land. Some point, the redemption of all things taking place at the millennial reign of Christ, they'll see those three nations only no longer warring with one another, no longer at war with Him, but rather dwelling in the peace of the kingdom as Jesus Christ reigns. Altogether. Because God is able to do above and beyond what you can even begin to imagine. How many times have we said, 
Well, write them off. God can't possibly get a hold of their heart. God could never change them. But Isaiah says he can. Isaiah says he will. In verse 25, Now when the Lord of hosts shall bless, saying, Blessed is Egypt, my people, and Assyria, the work of my hands, and Israel, my inheritance. So in that section, we're looking at the fulfillment yet future during the millennial reign of Christ as Jesus Christ rules and reigns from the throne of David. Again, as we look, keep in mind, we look back, our ability to understand prophecy 2020. We can look at Daniel's prophecy and align that cleanly and neatly with history. History written before history took place. And because we can see over and over again as we look at those prophetic values in the Word, we can know that those that are yet forward, those that yet lie before us, they will be fulfilled in like manner as those that were fulfilled behind. We know God's Word will be true. Amen? Why don't you stand with me? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord God, we just thank You for this time where we can gather before You, Lord. We thank You for an opportunity to open Your Word and, and just lay out uh, the book of Isaiah. Even as Isaiah indicated unto us that people called him a fool because he built line upon line, precept upon precept, verse by verse, all the way through. Here a little, there a little, the whole counsel of God. Lord, we thank You as we take this time to, to apply the word of wisdom to our heart, Lord, we ask, God, that you would help us make application to the word that we read, that we would have hope because of the fulfilled prophecies that we read about in the past, that those that yet remain future will yet be fulfilled completely and utterly as your word will be true. Lord, we thank you for the truth. And we thank you, God, that as we look at this, it should fill us with hope. For as bad as Egypt was, Lord, you still love them. There will still be a remnant. As bad as the Assyrians were, there, there's still a desire that they would spend time in your kingdom. Lord God, I, I pray that that would help us to realize that God is ever long-suffering toward us. Patient. Full of kindness and mercy. Chastising us when it's time to chastise, directing us when it's time to direct, but always through the hand of love that we might draw near unto you. Father God, help us just to make that desire, that decision, that choice, that we would be and walk a desire to be as close to you as we possibly can. Father, we look forward to that day, that glorious day when you call us home. Until that time, may we occupy until you come, fulfilling the great commission that you gave us to go into all the world and make disciples of all men. Lord God, we lay this time before you. Ask your blessing upon it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.